Today's reading is from Judges, chapter 16, verse 17. There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and like any other man. Dude, are you making a Matias Almeida Samson analogy on this fucking podcast? Obviously. Yeah, except it doesn't really hold because uh, Minnesota beat Almeida senseless last year when he had the glorious mullet and beat him again this year when he was shaved. So uh, are you are you guessing that he's going back to the mullet and then that's when San Jose finally gets good? David? Fuck God, man. podcast in the last seven days so pumping up that content for you um i got uh, i got mj and dan with us today bill's uh up north um still so uh mj dan how was your guys' weekends my weekend was great other than i left a contact in my eye a little too long and uh had a very sore red eye and basically had to live in darkness all of yesterday Yikes. That's no good. Uh, Arsenal won the fucking FA Cup. So <laughs> I mean, it's, right. like a, it's like a pretty damn good weekend for me. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, Saturday was excellent. Watched Arsenal beat Chelsea, win the FA Cup. And, uh, and you destroyed Christian Pulisic's uh, knee as well. Uh, no, no, no. It was his hammy. And okay. uh, Sorry, apparently, apparently it is not as bad as feared. So he will not play in the Champions League, but they're, they are expecting him back by the beginning of next season. Which is usually something you say when someone does have a severe injury, but given that the start of next season is six weeks away, it's, that's not so bad for hamstrings. True, true. Um, uh, yeah, Saturday was a damn good day of football for me between yeah, the FA Cup and then uh, Minnesota United turns around and absolutely obliterates San Jose. Another tournament darling defeated. For sure. We're going to talk about that in a second. I just wanted to uh, say uh, in relation to our, our cold open there, um, did either of you guys know that my uh, – my, uh, um, com- not my, not my confirmation. What's the one you do when you're older? Yeah, confirmation. Confirmation. Yeah, my confirmation name is Samson. Um, because they asked you to pick a, a you know a, a, a Christian Bible name or whatever, and I think most people pick it out of the uh, New Testament. And I, being a it's like 16 year old, I was kind of like fuck this shit. I was I was over it at that point, and uh, I said I'm gonna take Samson. Um, even though I didn't have any hair. So there was really no reason uh, for me doing that. But it was just, uh, I, thought that, I thought that was a, a fun 
compliments. The more esoteric pick would have been Ehud, but you know, whatever. Yeah, I was good. You could have gone for Balaam if you're just beating that ass. You know what? I didn't really want to uh, <laughs> dive too deep into the Bible <laughs> to, to find a name. So that might be why to, you were over it too. Yeah, I was trying to do as little as possible to uh, to get uh, to get confirmed. So. Um, yeah, and the, the bright side, all I have to do is repent on my deathbed. I'm going straight to heaven, guys. <laughs> you're uh, going to get hit by a train, you fucking... You're <laughs> never going to get the chance. Probably. probably. <laughs> all right, well, that's... If you like content like that, uh, our uh, our smacking of atheism and, and full-on uh, all that good stuff, uh, patreon.com backslash the I know, um, heathout.com, and then our Substack newsletter, the Dave's I know com. I promise, I swear to God, I'm going to get one out this week. Hopefully even tomorrow. I have a lot of stuff lined up for it. I seem to actually like sit down and write. So, um, and then the other big news, uh, we are officially on Spotify, guys. All, hey. all 162 episodes of this stupid fucking podcast are on Spotify. You can listen to every single one. And I dare somebody to listen to every single one of these podcasts. Um, actually, please do not listen to the first like 25 because Martin and I were still really trying to figure shit out. And we got really wasted a bunch of times. So they're very... <laughs> They're basically incoherent, uh, the first few, so. You could just not put those up, you know. I, you know, I, I just put the RSS feed in there and it automatically populated them. I think I can probably go in and, like, delete them. Um, but I don't, I didn't, I didn't spend a time. I literally, it just happened, like, maybe an hour before we started recording here. So I need to figure out how I can do that so I can go in and just uh, delete some of that shit, so. All right, so let's talk about uh, what the hell just happened with uh, San Jose. Um Obviously, as you as you know, uh, we are talking about this game. We won uh, four to one. Uh, the team lined up in a what everybody said was a four one four one. Looked a lot like a four two three one. Um, definitely, it was a four one four one kind of in attack uh, and, and defense. Um, but according to the team, it was a four two three one. But literally, every other site that I saw had it as a four one four one. So I don't know. Uh, lots of fun stuff happened in the first half. Um, in the very first uh, minutes of the match, of the match five fifth, the fifth minute in. Michael Boxall made an amazing run, box to box. Boxall, as as he's known, especially against San Jose, or only against San Jose, I guess. He makes a run in um, on uh, Vega with the ball, um, takes a shot, shots deflected, but he runs into uh, Daniel Vega, who is hurt on the play. Yeah, Boxall dribbles from from left to right. He's being tightly marked by the Norwegian nightmare Magnus Eriksson, flips a pass between Eriksson and Kasia, which is intended for Finley. But, you know, Erickson gets picked by Kasia, his own center back, so he can't stick with him anymore. Boxel just keeps gallivanting along, no big deal. You know, Tommy, not Wisconsin Governor Thompson, stops right in fr- steps right in front of Finley, intercepts the ball, but his first tet- touch is so high school MJ first date heavy that he essentially passes it back to Boxall, who continues to attack, takes a shot, um, you know, he basically looks like he dances through four of San Jose's guys and Vega comes, comes out hard. Like he comes all the way out beyond the six yard box and go, goes down, tries to get big. And, you know, he get, they both get ball, but you know, he takes the brunt of it and ends up tripping over Boxall's feet. Yeah. Uh, and he was down for down for a while. The the um, backup keeper uh, was up, getting ready, getting warmed up. So um, did not look great. 
There was a moment uh, when Boxy scored last year. He was interviewed about the goal. And of Daniel Vega, he said, he saw me coming and I don't think he wanted any of this big Kiwi, which was (laughs) one of my favorite quotes of all of last year. And I think we saw just now just why he may have not wanted the big Kiwi. Why he didn't want him. Yeah. Um, So not five minutes later in the 10th minute, um, Grey Goose takes a speculative shot. um, And and as soon as 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 basically the game was restarted, Minnesota was just taking shots at Daniel Vega. Um, so Gregus takes a shot in the 10th minute. Vega spills the rebound. Uh, Finley nearly puts it in on the near post, um, just just wide. Uh, and then not 10 minutes after that, that's when Minnesota opens the scoring with uh, our uh, our Finnish friend, uh, Robin Lude. Um, Dotson puts a, a great ball in. It's a recycled corner kick uh, to the far post. Uh, Aha in – just like the other previous game, just sort of like flicks it back across the goal. Um, and uh, Robin Lude is right there. Judson is absolutely caught ball watching. Um, he's he's a, a, you know, basically a step behind uh, Robin Lude. And Robin Lude just uh, taps it home. Um, it was a great flick by AHA. It was a great ball by Dotson. Um, recycling. And, and again, we talked about set pieces as being something that was going to be important for this team for this game. And this was a, a great example. Not 90 seconds later, um, Ja'Cory Hayes scores his first goal as Minnesota United. I think it's only his second goal in his uh, six-year um, MLS uh, senior career. Uh, goal starts with Ozzy Alonso being, being a bulldog, taking the ball off Magnus Eriksson. Um, he, he plays the ball to Dotson, who was able to basically run straight at the San Jose defense. Dotson takes a shot, goes by two San Jose defenders, uh, and through Alanis's legs who had a uh, not a great game, and we'll talk about him in a second. Uh, falls <laughs> on the ground. Vega spills, uh, again, spills, a, spills up a rebound. Um, should have easily made the save. And Ja'Cory Hayes, making a perfect run to finish it off, uh, guess who's supposed to be marking uh, Ja'Cory Hayes? Judson, who is, again, about a step behind uh, Ja'Cory Hayes. So, again, Judson not having a great game. Uh, and then, it, you know, again, eight minutes later, um, Minnesota's attacking again. Uh, there's a possible handball uh, on this on San Jose. Goes off his shoulder. Appears to hit his hand on the way down. But basically, this is you know, when you looked at this at the at halftime, the stats were. I mean, I believe San Jose had nearly 70% of the possession. 71. But, but Minnesota was the team that was looked like they were running San Jose off the field with their attack. San Jose was getting nothing. Um, so we'll start the second half then. And uh, Dan, why don't you start us off in the second half? Yeah. So Minnesota goes in. 2-0 up, really in control of the game. San Jose, to their credit, came out of halftime all guns blazing. They looked really good. They looked hungry. I think Almeida really lit into them uh, during the halftime team talk. And in the 48th minute, Tommy Thompson cuts into the box on Jahori Hayes, pops the ball up, hits Hayes in the hand. Hayes' hand is way outstretched, uh, and it's blown for a penalty. It goes to VAR which is probably the right choice. And we get what I think is the, one of the great developments of this tournament, which is we got to not only watch the VAR, we got to hear the officials talking to each other. Uh, I thought this was completely fantastic. What about you guys? I, if this is, yeah, this is the way they got to do it going forward in the future. I mean, this is, this is great. Um, I mean, obviously not the, not the way that the call ended up, but it's going to hold, uh, you know, teams and, and referees accountable. So much about FIFA is having the ref be this untransparent judge that is uh, 
omnipotent and doesn't get to answer to anybody. And some transparency communication is, is always better. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So one of the questions I had seeing the penalty in real time was, was that ball to hand? And that was something that was addressed in the VAR. We didn't hear the reasoning behind it, but we saw them. We saw Jeremy Rufo say, is that ball to hand? And then they played it back a couple of times and he just goes penalty and, and we move on. So and played it. So he played it at like 50% speed. And then for the last one, he's like, all right, give it to me again at, at full speed. Um, and that's when he says, okay, pen, um, which is great. Like they, you, they shouldn't spend, you shouldn't spend three and a half minutes looking at, at the, you know, frame by frame things that, you know, we think that we're, they're probably looking at in England and, and, you know, elsewhere around the world, it should be, you know, there should be a, I, I believe there should be sort of a set time, you know, a certain number of looks you get it at a certain number of looks at, you know, certain speeds, whatever it is, as long as the rules are standard, um, if you can't make a decision um, within, you know, say 90 seconds of looking at it a couple times at 50% and once at full speed, it's, it's, you can't change your call. Yeah. It's not clear and obvious at that point. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really fine with this being called a penalty. I don't, that's not my issue. I would have loved to, to understand why that's not ball to hand in ter- just in terms of rule clarity, not even having to, anything to do with this refereeing crew, but they yeah. blow for the penalty. Uh, Magnus Eriksson steps up and uh, puts uh, Tyler Miller the wrong way. And all of a sudden, all of Minnesota's good work in the first half, where they pretty well dominated despite never having the ball, uh, is halfway undone. And I got to admit, like, the, the first half, I was cruising. I was feeling really good. That penalty goes in, and instantly, I'm like, oh, shit. This is – we have seen this team, and not, not the 2019 or the 2020 version, but the 2017 and 2018 – just unravel. I mean, they call 2-0 the, the, the most dangerous lead in soccer, whatever. That's kind of horseshit. But, like, we have seen that team do this where they just sort of fall apart. And I was – I'll admit, like, I was a little bit nervous that that was what was going to come. Norwegian yeah. nightmare. <laughs> um, yeah, and you're right. And for a few minutes, it actually looked like San Jose had sort of found their legs about them and were starting to, to do some dangerous stuff. Again, nothing super dangerous. Uh, and then in the 56th minute um, – uh, Minnesota strikes strikes back, MJ. Yeah. Lute tries to do this give and go with Hayes. And of course, they're man marking. So Hayes is being marked really tight. But again, it's Mr. Heavy Touch, Tommy Thompson. And so Thompson intercepts the ball, but taps it right where Hayes can get to it before Thompson can. So Hayes gives it back to Lude as it was originally intended. And then he goes through and threads this nice little pass between, uh, I believe it was Kashi and Thompson, up, up to Amaria. Yep. Amaria jukes um, Alanis. Uh, again, we, you'll hear that name again come up. And uh, beats Vega near post. And I thought Alanis, for, for getting juked and you know, getting the moves put on him so that Amaria could get that left foot, I thought that Alanis did a pretty good job at taking away that far post angle. And Vega could have been a little bit more conservative on, on the near post. Um, but he left that post wide open. Yeah. It was, it was to be to Amaris credit. It was a great shot. Um, yeah. He hit it with, he hit it with pace and it was a little funky um, watching the replay this morning. It, you know, it wasn't a, just a, I, I don't, I don't know if you put a little English shot or something, but it was, it was a little funky of a shot. I think it was slightly bouncing, or he 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 kicked it a little bit off the pitch. Yeah, so, yeah, something like that. So that made it uh, Loons three, Earth uh, Quakes one. Um, 
And then, you know, after that, it was, again, it was right back to sort of Minnesota, like Minnesota conceding possession, um, but not getting broken down, playing super compact defensively, and then um, having some really great counters and really great, uh, um, you know, one-two play that Minnesota is not necessarily always known for. I clearly have, uh, clearly have with San Jose. I was like, there's a really great segment from the 66th and 68th minute where Schoenfeld, Aaron Schoenfeld, we should, we, I, we could say he had uh, some absolute stonkers. Uh, he had a couple opportunities where he was in on goal and he should have scored once here in the 66th minute. Um, Graves and Harrison get fouled seconds within seconds of each other with no calls by the referee. Uh, and the game pretty much. You know, once that sort of happened, Minnesota sort of regained confidence of possession and, and let uh, sort of dictated the pace of play. Um, and then the 86th minute, uh, again, recycled from a corner. Um, Alonzo collected a clearance. Uh, and again, great ball. So Greg who's had a particularly good game with, uh, with his uh, set pieces and, and corner kicks uh, this match, as he has the entire term. I think Greg Goose has been – um, sneakily really, really good all tournament. And we've, I know we've mentioned his name a couple of times. I don't think he's getting quite the love that he deserves. Um, Alonzo collects a clearance, passes to Dotson. Again, he has so much fucking space to run at San Jose defenders. Um, he runs to the end line, beats his defender there, and just crosses it uh, back across the box. And Harrison, um, completely unmarked by Cassia, is able to just tap it in uh, for the fourth goal. And uh, that's how the game ends. It ends uh, four to one to Minnesota United. Um, you know, but for maybe ten minutes in the second half, this game hardly ever felt in doubt at all. Did, I mean, what did you guys think? Yeah, absolutely agreed. And, and a lot of it comes down to the uh, to Corey Hayes' goal, uh, right following Lude's goal. You know, I think if United stays one nil up for quite a while, I suspect San Jose does exactly what they did to Vancouver which is just start punching. Give Jackson Ewell the ball, let him spray it around, take shot after shot, make make keepers make not just saves, but held saves. Always be looking for rebounds. But to go one goal, two goals in 90 seconds, I think really just stole their momentum in the first half. And then Amaria's goal in the second did the exact same thing. The moment it looked like they were in, all of a sudden they were back out again. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, so a couple so just fun, I guess, extra time facts. Zero yellow cards for Minnesota United. Um, again, sneakily, one of the you – know, there's always that joke about Liverpool for like when, with Klopp when they've been playing is that they're just like – they're too nice. Um, they've said that the last couple of years. <clears throat> they don't get yellow cards. They don't foul as much. I will um, never say that about Liverpool. Yeah, I know you won't, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, an, it's, a, it's a known fact. Anyways, Minnesota has been sneakily – a uh, well-disciplined team, not giving up um, ridiculous – other than, you know, they've given up the two PKs, obviously, which uh, not great, um, but not giving up fouls in dangerous positions, um, not giving up yellow cards, not putting their players in positions to have to play, you know, on yellows, um, other than maybe that first game against Sporty Kansas City where Chase Gasper had some pretty ridiculous – maybe should have been sent off. Um, they've been really good about that. Um, a couple other things I thought were interesting. Uh, 13 shots on target uh, – for this match, which is three more than any match in their history, which I think is bonkers, but cool. Uh, they clearly then, had a shoot on site policy with Vega and for yeah. very good reason, but like 
Greg Goosh is, is good if he's standing just outside the 18. If he, let's say he's you know 20, 21 yards away, he's looking for that pass in most games. He's looking to open up the defense that way. In this game, he apparently had gotten the green light from Inchi because he let fly. No Minnesota United player shot more than Jan Greg Goosh. And uh, mostly, if your eight is taking more shots than anyone else, that's a bad thing. But that's clearly <laughs> what United wanted to do. They firmly believed that Daniel Vega couldn't handle shots from outside. I think that was doubly so as soon as he got hurt. Um, yeah. They, they just, it, it, was, it was like that. Then he gets hurt, and then it just, they, just opened up the, they just opened up the fucking cannons. He went from danger Daniel Vega, Vega to dangerous to be Daniel Vega. Yeah. Um, so we have a question from uh, Helen. Uh, anyone else sense the severe sexual tension between Heath and Taylor Twelman? I don't – MJ, you want to take that first? <laughs> well, there's definitely been – some bitterness on Twelman's stand. He gets really defensive, even though he might have not have said anything positive about the loons on air for I don't know how long. Like, gets upset because Heath claims that no one has anything positive to say or like that. And then he comes back and says, Hey, none of us have been saying that to count the loons out that we don't believe in the loons. And then, you know they go back to his studio buddies and they all pick against Minnesota United. So I don't know. It, it, he's proving the Heath narrative, whether he likes it or not. This is, this is full on taping of the shrew guys. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, he, yeah. He, he finds Adrian Heath completely fascinating and is trying to like get inside his head and understand him. And I'm just really excited for the, uh, the bromance that's budding between these two, but they're definitely, yeah. Helen's not wrong. There's a, there's more than just a mutual admiration society going on here. And I will say, uh, we, are, we are the press people who do not doubt uh, Minnesota United because uh, I tweeted out from the Dave's I Know uh, Twitter handle right before the match kicked off that we were going to win 3-1. to one. And we almost fucking won 3-1. to one. So um, we were spot on. We were prescient. All three of us picked us to win. Yeah. All three of us believed in Minnesota United. All right. What's, it's like, that's remarkable in and of itself because we are we are firmly ensconced as haters. <laughs> let's uh, let's do let's do quickly Freddie Adu's. Um, so uh, MJ, who's uh, who's your good and bad Freddie Adu's? Well, in the spirit of the Freddie Adu, uh, best up and coming player of the game and shittiest player of the game, I have the same person for my <laughs> Freddie Adu best. So my best Freddie Adu player of the game is Jacory Hayes. Because we haven't seen a lot of him, you know, he didn't get a lot of playing time, I believe, in FC Dallas, and uh, he looked really, really good. And then there was that moment in the second half, you know, just with that sort of undisciplined defense, not maybe knowing where you're at or how threatening the situation is, and you know, it's a, it's definitely a foul in the box. So, uh, yeah, he gets he gets both awards for me. All right. Well, Dan and I kind of have had similar uh, similar ones. So I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the good Freddie Adu, and you can take the shitty Freddie Adu. Dan, is that cool? Yeah, that works. All right. So I had Dotson. Uh, he was just amazing all, all game. Um, this might be this might have been his best game as a loon. Um, you know, even compared to the games he scored at last year, playing right back, he contained Vaco all night. Amazing passing. Was able to get forward like Metinier. Uh, two assists, I think, well, one assist and then a hockey assist. Um, you know, easily could have scored a goal. He just, he played out of his goddamn mind, especially considering 
you know, Vako is, is a, is a damn good winger and, and he just attacked him all night. And Vako had, you know, I, I think I'm spoiling it. Vako was my uh, Freddie do good player for San Jose because I think he was the only one who actually had some sustained possession and actually had some shots, but they were all shots from, you know, outside the 18. Uh, he never really, never really uh, threatened too much. Um, and so I went with Dotson. So Dan, who was the, who was our, sh- our Freddie do for shitty player of the game? So Zeller and I both took uh, Luis Amaria for the shitty version of Freddie Adu, um, which feels a little harsh considering he did score. But United just consistently put him in such dangerous positions, and he was not sharp. He was leaving balls short. He was pushing balls hard. Um, dropping loots all over the place. Dropping loots all over the place. Honestly, I think with him it's a lot of rust. So he goes off injured ahead of the Sporting Kansas City game, doesn't play that at all. Um, RSL there was no real attack so yeah he got the minutes but he didn't really get time with the ball at his feet Colorado he shakes off a little bit of the rust Columbus it's right back to the same thing he gets no consistent service so this was really the first game where United put any emphasis on getting him the ball in dangerous places and I think that's what we saw um but Taylor Twelman uh, was the one who pointed out that if he had been slightly better in the first half, United would have gone in at 4-0 up instead of only 2-0 up, which is a strange thing to complain about. But he was definitely uh, definitely a weak link in the attack. I do want to also shout out Michael Boxall. <laughs> um, one of the keys to beating San Jose is your center backs have got to play. They've got to move forward. They've got to, to put some pressure. He absolutely did that on a couple of occasions. Uh, and both he and Jose Aja were, were very, very good in terms of just keeping the defensive shape, no matter how much the team got spread out. Uh, San Jose took 63% of their shots from outside the box. That was an increase of 22 basis points from their previous game. So they were very clearly getting frustrated. And I think that comes down to not just a consistent attack that was as effective as we've ever seen it from the Loons, but also not sacrificing their defensive shape for that attack. Yep, 100%. And as I predicted last week from seeing them play other times against the same team, that high press that we use against them, especially in their defensive half, really gave them trouble. Yep. Oh, San Jose had no answer for that, which, and it's a great point, MJ. Like, they should have. We've done this to them before. We don't do it consistently, but we do it when we play them. And they looked completely bewildered, especially in that first half. It, it wouldn't be so weird, except it's the same fucking center backs and center midfielders like Judson and Kashia and Alanis that have to deal with it. And they seem to be out of their element every single time. Yeah, it's weird. Um, all right, so let's, uh, let's talk San Jose quick. As I mentioned, uh, I had Vaco because I, you know, I don't know. There wasn't really anybody who was super great. Um, he took a third of all the quick shots again, but I mentioned um, Dawson just shut him down and he was taking shots from bad angles and from outside the box and where he wants to take them. And when you're, when you shut down the wings for San Jose, you know, and you shut down Jackson, you they have, they have nothing to, uh, nothing to do. And then for my, uh, for my shitty Freddie Adu, I had Judson. Uh, he was directly responsible for cowboying the first two Minnesota United goals inside of 90 seconds. So that was like a trifecta of a Calvo, um, giving up two goals and doing it within 90 seconds of one another. Uh, Dan, who you got? Uh, so I actually, for my good, had Jackson Ewell, uh, 95% pass completion. He was 19 to 22 in the attacking third, 27 out of 30 going forward, uh, and perfect both going back and, uh, uh, parallel. Um, he did what Jackson Ewell does. He was spreading the ball everywhere and, and really trying 
his best to get them into some interesting and dangerous positions. And United was just having none of it. So it was really interesting to see uh, primarily Dodson, but then also Ozzy Alonso in both cases, just completely shut down. Darlington Nagby, Jackson Ewell. I mean, that's the U.S.'s sixes right there. I mean, that's, those are the U.S. men's national yep. team, present and future. And Dodson and Alonso just said, no, no, you're not going to be effective this game. Go to hell. And that's just like, it, it shouldn't be a reflection necessarily on, on Jackson, who I did think played well. But, uh, man, just full props to those guys for shutting him down. Uh, my, my shitty one has to be Daniel Vega. Um, he absolutely should have saved the second goal. Uh, I think you could argue he should have saved Amarillo's. It was a decent shot. I think a good keeper does save it. And he just – his consistent issue is that he doesn't catch the ball. He parries it, and he's not careful about where he's parrying it. So, yeah, Finley's first narrow miss, the, set, the, the second goal. Daniel Vega was just a huge issue for San Jose all night. Yeah, I think that's actually an um, interesting point because we've seen that from a lot of keepers. They're not catching the ball down in Orlando. I don't know if it's if it, you know, it because the ball is wet and they're, just, they're worried about you know, it slipping out and they're trying to parry, but I think you're right 100% with Vega. And then actually someone we never we didn't mention, and MJ will get to you in a second, is Tyler Miller actually had a, had a really good game in this one. I, you know, there's nothing he really could do on that Erickson penalty. Um, he, was really, he also wasn't really challenged because Minnesota's defense played so goddamn well. Um, MJ, yeah. yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, just a quick point. Saved, but yeah, he was not challenged like in the last game. Uh, my, well, he, he also didn't spill the ball. I mean, yeah. everything that came yeah. in, he, he was either parrying safely or catching and laying. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really happy with what we see to Tyler Miller in the knockout stages. Sorry. And to your point, Dan Vega did spill the ball. He very much did. <laughs> um, my Freddie Adu on, on uh, San Jose is, of course, the Norwegian nightmare, Magnus Eriksson. There's a lot of things that he does as a 10 that are very eight-like. Um, he'll drop back into more of the center midfield uh, and, and make some key passes what, or dribbles forward or backwards to keep possession. Um, he'll make some nice square passes or switch the field passes like an eight would. And then there are times where he's attacking like a 10 and he's looking to distribute. And, you know, we just, as you've all have already said, we just shut them down really, really well. A lot of their angles of attack that they're used to having were not available to them. But I thought Magnus Eriksson played really well overall. And I'm taking uh, Alanis, of course, as my pretty do worst player of the game because uh, I can't help it. It's all his fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, he was not good. Uh, quick question from uh, our friend Christian. Um, is Robin Lude not bad now? And uh, I, I responded to that on Twitter. I was like, that's the wrong question. Um, it's not, is, it, is Robin Lude not bad now? Um, I don't know what the right question is, but I don't think it's this question. Because I don't think, I think he's still bad. But he's also, he's also an international soccer player who knows how to be in position. I think his touch and um, some of his uh, actual decisions are terrible. But he knows how to to. He knows how to poach a goal. He knows how to be in position. Um, that you know that goal that he scored in this game was it was completely out of just seeing like, hey, this, if this ball comes across, comes back across the goal, I need to be here. And he was there. And to his credit, he did a good job of of being there and and 
putting in the back of the net. But anytime that's that's not sort of the instinct instinctual stuff, when he has to actually make a decision, I think Robin Lude is bad. My issue with Lude isn't so much that he's good or bad in a vacuum, but that he's good or bad in MLS. You can see that this guy is a bright soccer player. To your point, like his movement on set pieces is excellent. We have seen it the last two games. And in open play, he tends to get into some really, really interesting places. Um, but for all of MLS's faults, it is an extremely athletic league. Like guys that are not fast don't last long in this league. Um, and I think that's, I'll, I'll take any opportunity to praise Roman Metinair. Uh, so I will take this opportunity to do it. I think that's what sets him apart is in a league of very, very pacey players and guys who are very strong. He is the paciest and strongest. He is a guy who can't get bullied off the ball and Lude can't. Um, you know, I think imagine him in a league more like the English championship or in Spain, which is where he was when United picked him up. Um, it's not hard to see his football intelligence compensating a little bit more for his lack of athleticism. But there were a couple of times against San Jose where he was in a really interesting spot. And what he should have done is exactly what Hassani Dotson did, which is drive the wall forward at the defense, but he could feel a defender coming up on him and he was passing instead of trying to continue driving forward. So, and part of this is what we saw with Gregoosh last year. You know, he's a smart player. He's learning the league. It takes time. And I think we're seeing that with Lute. He's so much better now than he was last year, but he doesn't have Grey Goosh's insane fitness. Did you guys read the uh, off-season piece about Jan Grey Goosh? That his, uh, his mile times that the team was having him run were so good they thought he was faking them until he videotaped it? No. Yeah, dude, awesome. ru- dude runs like five-and-a-half-minute miles. He's, like, he's a freakishly good athlete. Wow. And, and, and Lute isn't. And that's not, that's not like some great condemnation, but it does in MLS really put a ceiling on his ability to affect games. Yep. I'm going to put it this way. Lude has always been both good and bad in the sense that Lude has always been good at what Lude is good at and bad what Lude is bad at. And the thing about it is, is who you should blame for all this are the people who brought Lude here. Like Lude didn't pay, pay overpay for Lude's salary. Lude didn't go, scout, scout himself. He didn't, you know, recruit him to, to, to Minnesota United. He has these skills and weaknesses, weaknesses that we've pointed out, and he is not fast. And he is, he does have a lot of football intelligence. The thing about it is, is that when he gets into trouble, he needs faster people to kind of be in the right spots. And that is one of our weaknesses that we're slowly learning to solve right now is when one of our players is in trouble, how do we help them not be in trouble without sacrificing being left open on the defensive end? Yeah. Which is, I mean, everything that Robin Lude has done has been so much better from the middle and not the wings. Right. (laughs) So, so what you're saying is this is Adrian Heath's fault. Good. Duly noted. (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, Dan had a couple questions that I thought were, were, uh, that were good. And we sort of kind of will lead us into some other United news. Um, so the first question that, uh, that Dan had is, uh, has the tournament already been a success for Minnesota United FC? Dan, it's your question. I'll let you, I'll let you kick it off. Yeah. So 
the nature of tournament play is one team wins, everybody else loses. Um, obviously, Dallas and Nashville were the biggest losers because they didn't play a game in this tournament and couldn't stay healthy, um, which actually isn't their fault. It's not like they went out partying. Um, Atlanta. Atlanta is the biggest loser. Let's just settle on that. That's fine. Um, <laughs> didn't even score a goal. Fuck those guys. Um, but for everybody else, it's going to be degrees of success and failure. You know, United played in the, the toughest possible group and they didn't win it, but they weren't reliant on other teams. They got second, they came out. Um, they won two really good knockout ties. They showed themselves to be a legitimate contender team. Uh, and now at this point, they're playing Orlando, who's super hot, and then they're go- they are guaranteed in the final if they beat Orlando to play a very good team. They are either going to play Philly, who was the only team to win at Allianz Field last year, or Portland, who plays United really tough. Uh, and so I think at this point it's useful to, to sort of ask the question, you know, what were we expecting? I was expecting United to get out of the group and then lose their knockout round match, um, which Columbus certainly was capable of doing and did so to me, yeah, this tournament already is a success. We're seeing United gel. We're seeing the defense, which was outstanding last year, go to even another level, with, even without Big Daddy Ike. Um, so t- I think this tournament has done for United all that they could hope it would do. And so from this point on, to me, this is gravy if we win the semi against Orlando and we go to the final, we're one of the best two teams in the tournament. That's great. Um, You know, the flip side is you do get semi games like uh, Brazil and Germany, which yeah, Brazil was one of the final four teams that year, but sure. Nobody talks about it that way. When you lose by six goals. Um, But, but to me, I think this is a success. The flip side is this is a team that I think long-term will struggle to perform consistently well in the playoffs. Um, They just, in terms of investment, they don't have the same level as an LAFC, as Seattle, um, which makes this a very unique opportunity to get a trophy. And I realize that the trophy hunting isn't quite the same in the U.S. as it is in England and other places, but it is important. It is important for this team and for Adrian Heath when they're this close to get across the line. So I think this is a success, but I think there's also a very compelling argument to be made that they really do need to at least get to the final for it to be considered a success. Yeah, I'm well, That was a lot of different opinions, but I will... He's hedging his bets. I, expect, I expected them to take first or second in their group, which they did, and, and then win one more game. Uh, when this all started. So I didn't know we were going to be playing. Um, I didn't know we were going to be playing Columbus. I didn't know we were going to play San Jose. So I don't expect them to win one knockout game. So everything after that for me is gravy. Now, obviously seeing who our opponents were in the sense of Columbus and in San Jose, I like our odds there, but, but you know so this is already a success. Okay. You know what, guys? Um, if you're too chicken shit to say it, I'll say it. Second place is first loser. Win this fucker or go home. Um, that's that's it. It's especially now. Cobra Kai. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. <laughs> yeah. Second place, um, no place. I'm only place no place, David. I'm slightly kidding. Um in in that. It would be, you know, I think 
to Dan's, to your sort of your last point, um, seeing who we've beaten already, who we have coming up, and then who we have in the finals, no one, none of those teams scare me, right? Orlando doesn't scare me. You know, even though Philadelphia beat us at home, they don't scare me. Um, although maybe they should. Brendan Aronson has looked very, very, looked really damn good in the last match. Portland, we, you know, we've beaten Portland the last two, the last times we played them, we beat them one nothing. So Portland doesn't scare me. It's not like we're staring at LAFC on the other side of the bracket. Um, so at this point now, I mean, if you would have told me we would make it to the semifinals before the tournament started, um, I would have said, hell yeah, I'll take that. That's a, that's a good tournament. Now my expectations have shifted. Um, and then, uh, from, then I'll talk about from the, so from, so that's on the field. I think, you know, either we need to make the final for this, for considering everything that's happened so far. Um, and then doubly so because of all this fucking bullshit, no one believes us underdog shit that has been permeating throughout the throughout the tournament um that i don't know if you, did you guys read uh jeff's morning loon article um basically just hadrian he doubled down in the in the after after match conference call um being just being just a fucking asshole to reporters and i you know whatever i i understand a lot of reporters are kind of dicks but i know several of those reporters who are in those calls and they're not dicks they are nice people who are not uh, not trying to fuck with the team. They, they, they want the team to succeed, um, or at least they, they don't care if this team succeeds or not, right? There, there's no vendetta. And, um, you know, Wes said it really great on, I think it was on the 55-1 podcast. Maybe it was just in person when we were watching a match. That, that the error that Heath puts on about this, no one believes in us, just provides cover for people like Harrison Heath to be a dick, um, provides cover for the team to be assholes, to beat reporters, and just knowing the way this front office and this team has treated some of the reporters who cover this team, it's, it's really, it, it just, it, it makes complete sense is what I'm, is what I'm trying to say. And it doesn't surprise me uh, in the least. So, um, so has it been successful in terms of that for Minnesota? United? Yeah, they've alienated a shit ton of people. So that's cool. Um, good, good job. Good job front office. And actually sort of a really great. Um, so Dan, you also had another question. Your most impressive win San Jose or Columbus. Uh, I just wanted to read it. The, I don't know if you guys saw Alexi Lawless tweeted uh, after the match. Um, Congratulations to the underdog, plucky upstart, Rodney Dangerfield, little engine that could Cinderella, Rocky put upon disrespected Rudy punch above your weight. Bad news bears of a club that is at MNUFC Hollywood is calling, which I thought was just a great fucking tweet. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with Alexi Lawless on a lot of things that he, that he puts out there into the world, but that was fucking brilliant. He really but, nailed all of the cliches. I can't think of one he missed. Yeah, no, he, he really, he really, really did. So, um, I couldn't have written a, be- a, a better, uh, pop culture reference tweet myself. I know. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe he, little giants, uh, he could have probably put in the mighty ducks if he really wanted to, if he was trying that hard with Minnesota. But other than that, it's pretty much, that's pretty much it. Um, Dan, who uh, you, this again? Your question: More impressive wins, San Jose or Columbus? Why don't you uh, kick us off? Yeah, I won't hedge quite as much on this one. Um, what really impressed me about the San Jose win was the the change of tactic, the change of formation. Um, pretty much the same players, and they just balled the hell out. That was awesome. But the reality is, we have seen this team beat San Jose and beat them pretty mercilessly time and time again. And I love it. I'm never, ever going to get tired of it, but it becomes less impressive every time it happens. Some teams just have other teams' numbers, and we've got San Jose's. So the far more impressive to me is Columbus, because not only was Columbus a fun tournament darling, that team is talented as hell. And they were a team 
that could have beaten Minnesota United simply by playing their game better than United was able to play theirs. And they couldn't. They played really well. And Minnesota basically said, we identify exactly what you're going to try to do. And we're going to do it better. And that, to me, is one of the most impressive things. So, so to me, Columbus is the far more impressive win. MJ? Similar thoughts. Basically, the Minnesota destroying San Jose. Yes, we didn't have Molino. Yes, we didn't have Ipopara. Yes, we didn't have Roland Metinair. But we've seen this song and dance before at various different uh, – you know, square dance, barnyards throughout the country. We have seen this song and dance before. Orlando is a different type of team and requires a different type of game plan. And if there's anything that I've been critical about Heath is, well, maybe there's a lot of things, but one of the things is, is that he doesn't waver from what he wants to do. He doesn't adapt the loon style to the opponents. He says, this is going to be what we try to do. And if we fail at it, we fail at it. Well, this tournament has proven me wrong. He has taken very specific game plans against opponent styles. He's shifted formations. He's put in different personnel. And the Columbus game is the penultimate or the ultimate example of that for me is him changing things up personnel wise, strategy wise, and being successful at it. Um, what I, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back in there. He's he's almost consistently done that. Yes, he has. When it comes to playing offense, they have a very they're very fluid and they're not very fluid. They're very static in what they want to do in terms of their their attacking a four two three one. They, that's what they want on the pitch um, f- from an attacking perspective. He certainly has uh, adjusted his game plans, um, especially those first two years. He just he just did it they did it poorly and they didn't have the players to actually make the game plan work right you could definitely see that minnesota would just play certain types of teams now you heard it here first guys david thinks keith is a defensive genius i just that is is not what i'm saying i'm saying he just he hasn't he had he because he had he didn't always get it right and he definitely didn't he didn't get it right because he didn't have the players and he didn't realize that he didn't have the players or he knew he didn't have the players. He said, fuck, it, I'm going to do it anyway, which is again, also not great. This year he actually has the players. So he can say, all right, we're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to basically, gonna, we're going to sick Hassani Dodson on Darlington Nagby and just shut him the fuck down. Right. We're going to, we're going to play this, uh, you know, this sort of hybrid, you know, man marking counter, counter high press style, um, you know, high press in their zone, keep a compact defensive line in our, in our side. And we're going to shut, you know, we're going to shut the wings down for San Jose. We didn't have, we didn't have the, the players to do that. And, and instead of like a good coach saying, we don't have the players to do it. We're going to have to, we have to like modify that. He just kept trying to do. So I'm not saying that he, I think. <clears throat> and so this is what I will say. I think Keith has, I think he does is, is a, a good soccer mind. I'm not saying he's a great soccer mind. I think he's a good soccer mind. I think he understands what he needs to do to counteract certain teams, right? Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, he has that with Almeida. He clearly understands what his team needs to do. Now, it's whether he has the players to do that or not. Now, that's the question. is like, okay, do you want that kind of a coach? Or would you like to have a coach <clears throat> who builds a style and plays that style, like sort of like Bob Bradley? Or a good example, Matisse Almeida. Matisse Almeida has a certain style. We know we sort of conjectured last week, like, you know, Minnesota's had their number for the last three games. Maybe he changes it up. He 
He didn't change it up at all. Um, he played the same fucking style, and he tried to ram it down Minnesota's throat. Minnesota had had his number. So, you know, the question is, do you want the coach who, you know, is, is adaptable, um, willing to ch- change up based on who they're playing, um, or the coach who's going to put together the style that it's going to be, you know, whatever, good, hard-nosed soccer um, or, you know, that sort of flashbang, um, exciting soccer that San Jose plays or, or LAFC plays, knowing full well that there will be teams who will be able to um, – uh, take advantage of that, right? So LAFC, you know, they're they're pretty porous in the back, right? So if you can, you know, if you can attack their their back line, um, you got a shot. Obviously, you know, Minnesota has San Jose's number. So I guess that's the question is like, which kind of coach would you prefer to have? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if I would rather have Almeida or he. Draw two names for you. Okay. Minnesota's defensive coach previously was a guy by the name of Mark Watson. In the offseason, we moved him to technical director, and we brought in a guy not home alone, Macaulay. And, and uh, is it possible that other than, than Heath's defensive genius, you're seeing the imprints of a better defensive coach? I mean, I think that's well within the, the, the possibilities. You know, we're seeing, we're seeing we haven't lost much defensively without Ike Opara. Um, I think we lost a little bit. We, I think we lose a little bit offensively because um, it doesn't allow Romaine Metnier. <clears throat> at least we didn't see Romaine Metnier getting forward nearly as much in those first three matches. Um, he was staying back a little bit more. But we saw Hassan Gatson get forward with uh, Aha playing uh, as the right center back. So I don't know. That's, that's you know, we're never actually going to know the, the definitive answers. And to, to answer this question, I mean, I think of these two, I think Columbus is the most impressive win. Honestly, I think the most impressive win we've had of the tournament is that Sporting Kansas City game coming from behind, um, playing like shit for 60 minutes, and then just, you know, finding a a second level to go to. Um, I know that wasn't one of your options, Dan, but uh, that sort of hijacked your question. But I think of of those two, um, I think I agree with everything you said about Columbus. So don't don't need to belabor that point. You know, I think uh, to MJ's question about the, the coach's impact, I think one thing we are seeing uh, with all four teams that are left really is just how important in this tournament cohesion was. So you think about the team from 17 to 18, there's a ton of changeover and there needed to be from 18 to 19. There was a ton of changeover and there needed to be 19 to 20. Very little, very little, especially at the back. Um, so yeah, missing Ike was a, was a big miss. Aha certainly is not his, his equal defensively, but slotting in, one new player into a back four is far different than slotting in three new players to a back four. So I think that has paid huge dividends for this team is just knowing each other, having some sense of, you know, what runs guys are going to make, what runs aren't you going to make. Yeah. And sort of to, to your question about which type of a coach you would rather have the number one skill I want in a coach is figuring out is not the figuring out what optimal strategy is, but figuring out what his guys can do. Because it does nothing for Minnesota United to play an ideal strategy against some team that's not Columbus or San Jose. Uh, you know, if it requires the team to be in a 3-5-2 that, uh, you know, does a lot of interchange in the attack. And basically, if everyone doesn't have good defensive responsibility as their, you know, primary mental state, then the whole thing doesn't work. That's not going to work. It's not this team. So what's impressed me about Heath isn't necessarily his ability to pick an optimal strategy. It's to look at his guys and go, I know what you can do. And I'm going to ask you to do 
this. And I am sure you can. Now, it may not be what you're accustomed to doing. It may be a little different. And Dobson's a perfect example of this, considering he's now played, what, right back and then six and ten. I mean, I'm going to pause here to just praise his footballing IQ. We did this with Robin Lute, and I want to make sure we do it with Dotson. To play those three positions, that requires somebody with a pretty consummate knowledge of the game. Yeah. So, yeah. so shouts to Hassani Dotson. But shouts to Adrian Heat for looking at Hassani Dotson and saying, okay, this is screwy, but go with me on this. You're going to play these three positions, and I know you can. I'm going to build a game plan around you, because not because I believe you can, because I'm sure you can. And something we talked about a little bit about at some point last week in one of our two podcasts is Inchi has the trust of these players. Like we can, we can sit here and talk all day about, is this optimal? Is this not, is the the bulletin board material working? Is it not whatever? And it's very academic, but the reality is he has the trust of the team. And so when he says, okay, you guys bunkered as well as any Jose Mourinho team ever has (laughs) against Columbus. And now, now we're going to punch San Jose in the mouth. And we're going to do it repeatedly. We're going to high press, just a completely different philosophy. Nobody on that team went, are you out of your fucking mind, old man? They went, yeah, this is going to work. And we're going to yeah. do this. And then they did. Yeah, he's bought in. They're, they've all bought in. So, um, all right. So we'll have, we have a little bit of United news. Um, and we're going to end with uh, an, unfortunate, an unfortunate topic uh, before we take a break and then jump into, you know, talking a little bit uh, about the rest of the, about um, Orlando coming up. So, uh Breaking news earlier today, um, Bakaya Dibasi, um, the French Malian center back um, from Amiens in uh, France. And he was, well, originally they were in League One. They were relegated back to League Two, League, uh, yeah, League Two today, or this this year, sorry. Um, he has played left back as well. Um, Dan, do you have, you have some, or some of these year stats here? Yeah. So just to give you sort of a sense of who he is, six feet tall, uh, averages three and a half clearances a game. One of the things that uh, did impress me about his numbers, by and large, he's, he's a very solid but slightly unremarkable center back uh, for the French League. Uh, but over the last three seasons playing almost full-time, he has only conceded two penalties. So he's not a guy – he isn't David Luizing it. David Luiz, who gave away five penalties for Arsenal this year, yeah. uh, setting a new Premier League record. So he's very reliable back there. Uh, the move to left back was something that happened towards the end of the season. So I'm a little unclear – if that's a comfort position for him, or if it was a, hey, we don't want you at center back anymore, how do you feel about left back? Uh, one of the interesting things uh, that's come out over the course of the day uh, comes from Cal Williams, who said, uh, so this is a TAM level deal, uh, same as Metonair was on last year and going forward for that matter, uh, that he firmly believes that they are bringing in Debasi to compete for a starting place with the full expectation that he will win one. And I'll be very interested to see if that means unseating Boxall, who has been excellent and is a team leader, or Gasper, who has also been excellent and is the first full U.S. international this team has had. Yeah, that is uh, – that's interesting. First full international this team has had has actually been technically Miguel Ibarra back in the NASL days. But Well, yeah, sorry. Okay, <laughs> that's so that's NASL versus the MLS yeah. iteration. My- so my question when I when I saw that this deal was done, I mean, is Brent Coleman uh, along for Minnesota? Um, you know, I, I joked in a, a Slack that we're in uh, that Order sixty nine means that we can only ever have four center backs on the roster, <laughs> um, which means Brent Coleman might might be not be long for the, for Minnesota. Um, 
so yeah, so that's an interesting, uh, interesting development. We'll see what he he'll, he should be able to come in on August twelfth, assuming they get all the um, all the visas and immigration papers and things like that uh, in order, um, which is nine days from now. That's when officially when the transfer window opens, uh, August twelfth. And then the other sort of bits of bit of news that popped up with that um, in that Andy Greeter reported in uh, the Pioneer Press is that. Um, Heath mentioned that they wanted uh, the Reynoso deal finalized one way or another within the next few weeks. I believe he said he's either going to be final or they're going to, they need to start looking at other options, which I think was kind of a, um, you know, we haven't really heard about any other tens that they were looking at. So this is a take it for what, you know, take it for whatever you believe, grain of salt, whatever, you know, finishing up that Reynoso deal. Um, if they can get it done, it feels like they've been, you know, working on that for like 18 fucking months. So um, yeah, hopefully we'll see uh, in a couple weeks. Again, Traps One opens on August 12th. Uh, and then the last sort of thing we want to talk about before we take a break is um, a, I don't know, I don't know how we want to, how we want to approach this. Um, Brent Coleman, who this podcast loves, um, huge Brent Coleman fan, uh, wore a, was in a, literally the only person I've seen in this shirt. And maybe, you know, if, if someone else has worn this shirt, I don't, I've not noticed it. An end racism shirt. So instead of wearing the Black Lives Matter shirt that every single other person um, that's I've seen in this tournament has been wearing, um, or an end racism, racism shirt with uh, a black and white hand sort of interlocked, uh, shaking hands or, or, you know, clutching hands. Um, and then, <clears throat> again, this is the only uh, player I've seen do this. Um, during the kneeling moment, so when, you know, every, you know, and when every player kneels on the pitch, um, all the all the players kneel on the sidelines as well. Um, even fucking Adrian, he- Adrian Heath, uh, the Tory himself was kneeling. Brent was standing um, behind his, the uh, rest of his teammates. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. This is, uh, this is interesting. And I, I'm curious what you guys have to say about it. I have some thoughts and I, I kind of want to, I'll, I'll let you guys <laughs> take it for a sec here. I think so it's I'm, very d- dangerous to con- conjecture here uh, and yep. r- to rush to judgment. Uh, there's a tendency to get a lot of internet pitchforks out. And what I will say is the optics are bad. Like all you would need is Brent Coleman telling the team, I want to wear this shirt and having – Ja'Cory Hayes or Kevin Molino or someone else on the team who was person of color to say, I will wear this shirt with you. And it doesn't go, it's not going to garner the attention that it does with just one person who is white doing this. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's not the black players, like job is to hold Brent Coleman's hand. Um, no, no, right. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it is. Well, I mean, I just, I, that's, that's, you know, you know, so what I'm saying here is that um, if Brent is going to do something like that, he needs to come out and say why he's doing that. And, you know, it's been two days since it happened. Uh, again, the, you know, the, the broadcast didn't show the benches very often during this kneeling moment, but they, 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 they showed the bench. Um, and I didn't notice it on Saturday night when we were watching the game. It was only after I heard, I mean, I saw the end racism shirt, but I didn't see the, that he wasn't kneeling during the, during the, um, you know, that opening whistle. 
um, until I rewatched it again. And, and after everybody had mentioned, he didn't, he was standing during that thing. And then, um, and then to see the end racism shirt. And again, it was pointed out by John Champion and Taylor and Taylor Twelman um, during the broadcast, you know, and, and maybe he didn't think he was, it was going to be a, a big deal, but it clearly has rubbed a lot of people, um, you know, the wrong way and, and, and have heard absolutely nothing from, Brent or the team, um, and they've had several days to try and, you know, so you're right. You're op- the optics are bad, and the optics are getting worse every single, every single minute that they don't and put out something about it. I would like more media people to draw attention to it and ask Brent Coleman himself the question. Unfortunately, with someone who's on the bench and not getting any playing time, you know, he's not going to be one of the people interviewed after the game to talk about his contributions to the game and then to kind of do a tag on, oh, we noticed this, you know, during the anthem you know, you were wearing this shirt, you know, like, yeah, you, I don't believe anybody's, I don't believe anybody's approach him about it. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah I, someone from the media should. And, yeah. um, and that's to your, I totally agree with you, David. It's not just on the media, like the team, a representative of the team or Brent Coleman himself could come and explain himself, especially after seeing the, all the hoopla saying, Hey, this is why I wore this shirt. This is what it means to me. Yeah. Dan. Yeah, the interesting thing to me, there's just a lot of this that I don't like because I don't understand. Um, MJ's dead on. The optics of this are really bad without an explanation. So I I hope that we get one soon. The strange thing to me is that this wasn't Coleman's first game in the 18. He's been in the 18 before, which means was this a deviation? Did he wear it in the previous game and – this was somehow different for some reason. That would be weird, but maybe a badger jumped out and ripped the shit out of his shirt. They had to, they wanted to give him some type of positive message, but they didn't have a spare. Or was he wearing this before and nobody noticed and it was just on this broadcast, which would be entirely explainable because you know, he wasn't eligible prior to this game and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And, the shirt, he should, he should be supporting his teammates. He should be wearing it. It is not, to me, um, a, a singular event worthy of condemning him. There are, with Black Lives Matter, there are pieces that people have grabbed onto and said, this is the part about the movement that is the most important thing to me. And I think those things are distractions, and I think those arguments are facile. But there are arguments that exist out there, and professional athletes aren't always known for being the most um, discerning when it comes to arguments that they see in here. So if that were the case, I would say, okay, I don't like that, but I see where you're coming from. You're an idiot, but I understand where you're coming from. Not kneeling during the moment of silence is the thing that takes me from, huh, this is weird to, huh, you'd better explain yourself as fast as you can because this looks really bad. This isn't the anthem. Like we have been over the anthem protests time and again, and there are so many bad arguments about, well, you're disrespecting the flag, you're disrespecting the military, and yada, 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 whatever. I'm not relitigating those things. This isn't even that. This is take a knee in a moment of silence for people who have died. That he is not doing that feels almost impossible to explain away. And I, I think he should have the chance to do it. I think MJ is dead on here that we should not crucify him before 
he's got a chance to tell us what his side of it is. But I am having a really hard time imagining an argument that is compelling for, yeah, I didn't really feel like participating in a moment of solemn silence. Yeah. Like, to me, that is a big fuck you to something that literally no one should have an objection to. It literally happened in, you know, Minnesota's backyard, right? Right, um, yeah. Like doubly so. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's so when I said that with the media, I'm, I, that's not to say that I'm sure, I'm sure there are um, people who have covered this team who have asked about that. It would, it would surprise, listen, it would surprise me if like Jeff Reuter and, and Greeter and those, and those folks have, haven't asked about this and, and what happened and all that stuff. It would surprise the hell out of me if they haven't asked. Um, the fact that the team is not responding or we haven't heard anything or seen anything speaks, you know, speaks volumes. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's just a lot of, it's, it's shitty. It's shitty, but it's also some, it's also a, it's an important conversation. Like Brent's never going to listen to this podcast. He's not going to hear that. Hey, don't be a shitty dude and just, and do the thing, uh, be respectful, come out and say why you, you know, say, say why you believe the way you do. Like, we're probably, we're probably not going to agree with you, but at least we like, we have, we'll have a, a context for, you know, what you're, you know, what you're, what you're coming at. Well, you just don't say anything that, that just allows people to draw inferences and allows people like make uh, conjectures and, and um, yeah. So it's just a, you know, messed up situation. So, but our, I think our job, especially, um, especially Dan, yours and I's as, as, you know, cis white males is like, we need to talk to white people about this and, and explain to them why, like, you know, why that, you know, trying to, trying to dilute the message um, makes the message not powerful anymore. Or, you know, it, it's, it, there's a reason why we keep saying Black Lives Matter. It's not because, um, it's not because we believe that Black Lives Matter more than, than white lives or, or um, Asian lives or anything like that. It's, it's because of the way that they have been treated for, you know, centuries. Um, and that is the reason why it's important for us to have these conversations uh, and to talk to our fellow white folks about this and make sure that, you know, that people are starting to at least realize um, what, those, what those Black Lives Matter conversations are actually really truly about. It's not about Marxism. It's not about um, reparations. And, and although that's part of it and should be a part of it, it should be the part of the conversation. The bigger part of that conversation is about um, letting people know about sort of the hurt and anguish that people and the fact that there's just a completely different system set up for people who don't look like, like us. So. Yeah. And that, that sort of leads into the sort of last point I'll make on here, which is, yeah, you're dead right. Coleman doesn't listen to this. Um, I doubt, I mean, we interviewed Brian and that was awesome, but I doubt that we like picked up a listener from doing that. So this is really about, you know, us being able to influence the people around us. And I mean, David and I are both more than available to have those conversations if you want to have them with us. Um, I wonder what his teammates think, because ultimately it doesn't really matter what we think, but Ike has been a big part of the MLS is black uh, community. Mason toy and Ike did uh, Martin Luther King uh, festivities or a round table, I guess is far, a far better word. Uh, about the experience of black players in MLS uh, run by MLS in February. Jory Hayes wrote that great piece on being black in America and being black as a professional athlete and how that doesn't buy you exempt, exempt status. Um, all of these people have 
learned experience, have earned experience and have lived experience that is wildly different from Brent's. And I'm just, I am very curious what they see when they see a dude from Woodbury who won't wear a Black Lives Matter shirt. And they will probably, knowing the, the characters of the guys we've named, they will not come out publicly in all likelihood and slap that dude around. But I would be very curious what their private feelings are about that. Yeah. MJ, why don't you we'll give you the last word on this? You guys both raised some amazing points here. And, you know, Dan, you, your, what you said about the not kneeling really, really hit home to me because the, there is, I'm not saying there is no excuse for that, but, you know, that really deserves a lot more explanation than just a t-shirt does. Um, when you think about how symbolic that is and, and just not just team-wide, but league-wide, you know, as David pointed out, you know, Adrian Heath took a knee. You know, it, this shouldn't be a controversial thing to um, remember people that have died, who have been murdered by police officers or in the struggle for equality. Um, it just really shouldn't. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope Brent has an opportunity to explain himself and we can take and leave that. But until that happens, a lot of people are going to think the worst. Yeah. And he really hasn't given them any, anything, any reason to think better. Yeah. All right. Now that shitty somber note, uh, we'll take a quick break. Um, we come back, we will talk, um, very briefly about the other semifinal in MLS is back and then uh, really dig into Orlando and how, uh, how we think Minnesota United should play them. So we'll be back uh, in, a, in one minute. You want me to be that type of dude and I want to be who you like me to but we both And we're back. Um, yeah, so kind of had to end on a little heavier note. Um, hopefully, the second half will be a lot lighter. And let's uh, let's quickly start with uh, this other half of the bracket for MLS is back. Uh, semifinals: Philadelphia um, beat the hell out of Sporting Kansas City, and uh, Portland took it to NYCFC. Um, any thoughts on the games, uh, either Philly or, or Portland, or what you're looking for for this game? One thing uh, we talked about. Uh, kind of going into the tournament, particularly as it pertains to the NWSL, is the ability of a keeper getting hot to completely change the complexion of a game. Um, and that's what Andre Blake has done for Philly. He, he is standing on his head. He looks so good. Um, and Minnesota has seen what Andre Blake can do when he gets this hot. So um, yeah. I, to me, this is all about guys like Diego Valeri, Jeremiah Bobasi, uh uh, Nishgoda, the New Portland DP, and their ability to break down Blake in a way that pretty well nobody has to this point. Yeah. MJ? Dan, I believe you were the only one who picked Portland to win uh, against uh, uh, New York. So, congrats on you. Thank you. Um, I am picking I'm picking Portland. Um, 
I do believe Philadelphia has a better roster and uh, the hotter goalkeeper. There's just something about the way that Portland plays that I think they're going to work an upset. That's fair. Um, kind of harkening back to our Dan, I think a, a point that you mentioned about the consistency of teams, um, Philly, Orlando, Minnesota all have very similar rosters to what they had last year. Um, Portland actually has a pretty similar roster. They added a few more pieces than uh, Philly, uh, Orlando, Minnesota did. But, um, you know, all four of these teams have very, very similar rosters to what they had last year, which, again, I think goes to that sort of like that consistency and, and, and knowing who your, uh, um, who your teammates are. I think this one goes to penalties and, you know, I got to lean towards, I got to lean towards Dan in, in Philadelphia with Andre Blake standing on his head. So I'm sure you're all alone on with Portland. So um, Brendan Aronson looked really fucking good in that last game that he played. And he they just, did. Um, I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant to pick Philly just because, you know, Philly has played decent. Um, they haven't been playing lights out, but they had that 20 minute stretch uh, towards the end of the first half against Sporting Kansas City they looked downright unstoppable. And if they can harness any of that uh, for any extended period of time, they're going to be a really tough out against Portland and a, and a really tough out in the final. So um, I just have more faith in them harnessing a little bit more of that than uh, Portland doing what they need to do. So I think it's, I think it's going to be a really even game. I think it's going to go to penalties. I think Philly wins. So this is what, what you two have done to me. You've taken my European possession, possession sensibilities and you've thrown in this MLS chaos like aspect. And that's why Philadelphia that run a more European controlled style offense and yet have shown points where they break down and they can't sustain it. And Portland is the chaos. Now that San Jose is out, Portland is the chaos. And, <laughs> And with the exception of, of San Jose versus Minnesota, chaos has won this tournament. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Hashtag MLS is drunk. Yes, MLS is drunk. Uh, all right, so the final will be next Tuesday, August 11th, and the, uh, whoever wins that Portland-Philadelphia uh, game on Wednesday will play the winner of the game on Thursday, which is uh, our Minnesota United Loons uh, taking on Orlando. Um, right now <laughs> – Contrary to all fucking belief, uh, Orlando is the favorite to win this game, according to Vegas, which is basically yeah. you know all Adrian Heath needs to needs to see. Don't tell him about fifty five uh, five thirty eight. Five thirty eight ha- has us picked second. Has, has us winning. Okay. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell Adrian Heath about five thirty eight. Um, Just show him Vegas. Yeah, yeah Orlando Vegas. is a is a slight favorite. Um, plus one forty five in Minnesota's plus one seventy. Um, the over-under is two and a half goals, over is minus 105, under is minus 115. Uh, and then basically to make the final, so, you know, the draw is plus 255, if you're, if you're wondering, um, to make the final, you know, cause that's, someone has to make the final, uh, again, Orlando city is a slight favorite minus 125 to Minnesota United, uh, minus 110. So let's talk a little bit about some of the players, um, or personnel that we, uh, that were, that were either concerned or, you know, think we have an opportunity to exploit and we'll like, spend, you know, most of our time here talking about how we should play them. So uh, MJ, do you want to, you want to start us off? Yeah. I'll first talk about their number eight midfielder, Hexen Mendez. He's kind of unsung. Oh, he flies under the radar, but he just makes a lot of 
quick, short passes that gets the ball from the midfield into that attacking third. And he does so with a pretty decent passing accuracy. I forget what, what I saw for the stats. But, yeah, I'll look for him to kind of be that go-between between the back line and the attacking players. Yeah. Dan, who do you got? Uh, I want to take uh, Juan, their right back. Um, one of the things that Orlando has done exceedingly well so far in this tournament is overloaded attacks. Um, and Nani's a big part of that in terms of uh, just some elite level ball distribution and progression. But a big part of it too is their ability, uh, the ability of their fullbacks to get up into the attack into some really dangerous places. And uh, Ron or Juan uh, is uh, pretty emblematic of that. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see if they can do it against Minnesota United, given that Gasper and either Metnair or Dotson are probably the two best fullbacks they will have played. So it'll be interesting to see, do they try it and fail? Do they not push quite as aggressively? But that could be the X factor in the game to me is which team's fullbacks uh, get up into the attack without leaving huge gaps behind them. Yeah. Um, MJ, you had someone, someone else? Um, I'll talk about their 10, uh, Mauricio uh, Pereira. Pereira? Yeah. Mauricio Pereira. Um, he's good. He distributes well. He gets in on the attack. He's good at set pieces. Sometimes he will take a free kick or a corner kick for them. Just very good field vision, what you want your number 10 to be. If we come with a plan of attack to shut him down, like we've shut other good central attacking midfielders down, we should be fine. But I don't think we've seen someone quite with his skill set. Yeah, and then I'll just sort of casually mention um, a couple of internationals, uh, Tesho Akindele and Chris Mueller, uh, forwards for uh, um, Orlando City. Tesho Akindele is a, a Canadian, Chris Mueller is American. Uh, they've been both been interesting, uh, interesting players this so far this year. Mueller's actually stepped up and, and, um, you know, showing a little bit about potentially getting into that, you know, uh, U.S. Uh, national team pool. And then the other big one is, um, obviously Nani is, a, a DP player midfielder for them. And again, to the point that Dan had mentioned earlier, um, you know, Oscar Perea, you know, they did bring in a ton of new talent. They brought in Oscar Perea. And Oscar Perea has really uh, been the glue that has um, brought everything together and got them playing um, on sort of the opposite of Adrian Heath and like the no one believes in us and just they believe in themselves and they don't really care about anything, anybody else I mean, outside. Um, Oscar Perea has these guys playing and, and um, playing like a cohesive unit, which is really, really uh, amazing considering the track record of Orlando City. Yeah, I don't think Pereja's uh, influence could possibly be overstated. I mean, how many how many wins did Orlando have coming into this tournament? I, the number I have in my head is twelve in their entire franchise history. Uh, no, 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 it can't be that. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah. It's like uh, he had twelve, I think, in his first year. So Inchi had eighteen during his entire the entire course of his career. Christ had twenty two. James O'Connor had 13. So, oh, that's what it is. So, James O'Connor had 13 uh, over his last two seasons. So, 
for uh, Pareja to have already won three games. He is already 25% of his way to uh, James O'Connor's record as, uh, as Orlando coach. So that's, that's uh, it's off to a damn good start. Yeah. Uh, I, and then I just want to, one additional fuck you to Dom Dwyer, who's not playing in this game. Uh, he hurt himself. He had surgery a couple days ago, apparently successful surgery. But, uh, you know, the question was, who's the designated diver for uh, Orlando now that Dom Dwyer is not, not playing? So, I don't know. If we don't have, have another, they don't have another DD name on uh, another dumpster diver. They don't have another DD name on, on the roster, do they? They don't, I believe. Yeah, Dom Dwyer is the designated diver. Yeah, the, the Dom Dwyer. Yeah. All right. That being said, all right, so we know a little bit more about Orlando. Who, how do we play uh, Orlando? How should United play them? Uh, MJ or Dan, whichever you want to start. I'll start. Okay. Uh, we need to play them probably more like Columbus than San Jose. And then sense of we need to bunker down. We need to expect them to attack. And as you guys have pointed out, have these kind of overlapping runs. And we need to be able to absorb that and then do what we do best, counter on the, on the turnovers. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about this game is, unlike the previous two, this is strength against strength these two teams are going to play each other very, very similarly. Um, they're going to try to do very similar things, and it's going to be a question of who can do it best. Uh, I think the two big X factors in this game are obviously Nani. Um, he's just he's so good at finding the little pockets of space, and he looks like a totally different player, by the way. He looked disinterested last year, and like the team was lousy as hell, so it's not that I blame him. But this year he looks bright. He looks engaged. He's into his teammates he's he's really the leader of the team which is what you want out of a, a designated player at Nani's level uh both in terms of potential skill and salary uh so I think he's definitely one x factor because no matter how good United's game plan is he can still break it down and that's a big danger but I think United's x factor is Ozzy Alonso because you sort of game plan for how you're going to break down a back four, you know, okay, maybe they've got a six that, that that'll drift back there. So we should know what to do with five players. Ozzy can defend the hell out of everybody. Um, he, it is entirely possible that he can neutralize Nani, not quite single-handedly, but damn close to it. Um, so at that point, it becomes a question of whose fullbacks are more effective in the attack, who's get back on defense more effectively. Um, I wish Roman Metner were playing in this game. Uh, and that's no shade to Hassani Dotson, who was more than a capable fill-in against San Jose. But Metner is just a, that one degree a little bit more assured in his defensive role than Dotson is. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see. One thing we didn't really talk about in the San Jose game was they started in the first half attacking down the right, um, definitely looking to exploit Metner's absence completely understandable you look at the pass map in the second half yeah they abandoned that pretty quickly when it, when Dotson clearly uh showed himself capable to the task and we know that uh Pareja was at the game so he saw Dotson be a capable fullback so I don't think they'll make that quite that same mistake mm. but uh, that is Nani's side though not Nani is their left wing yeah yeah so they, be Nani going have, 
Or Metonair, yeah. It'll be it'll be Dotson. There's no way Metonair's hamstring is back that quickly. That's yeah. a big that's a big muscle on anybody, but on somebody of Metonair's physical capacity. Like that's a big muscle to strain. It just takes time to get back. So that to me, those are the uh, that's the X factor matchup, right? Is is Nani against Dotson and Alonzo? We already saw Nagby fail there. We saw Yield pretty well fail there. Is not and Nani's a very different player from those guys, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. Can he dribble through? Is he more incisive than the other two, or is the pairing of Dotson and Alonzo just one of those all-star defensive pairings that you really can't break down? Yeah, I mean, to be fair with Net, with Nagby, he was he was playing as more of a central midfielder um, as well versus the right back position. <clears throat> so unless you're going to put someone like Hairston uh, as a right back and and put uh, Dotson and Alonzo together. Um, I think we see Dotson back at the right back, right, uh, right full back. Uh, Molino should be healthy. So Molino is more than likely um, going to be uh, going to be playing. You know, you could also potentially see Hayes um, start off and, and, you know, again, kind of that if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of thing um, with Molino coming in, maybe at halftime if they need a spark. Um, but with the shifts that Hayes and Dotson put in, I would, you know, I could easily see Adrian Heath just sort of sticking with the same, the same sort of formation. Um, you know, this team, again, I think you just got to stay compact defensively. Uh, it hit them on the breaks uh, and hit them on the break and hit them on restarts and set pieces. Minnesota has been uh, amazing so far on set pieces in terms of um, getting good shots, good positioning, creating the recycling opportunities, you know, where the, the defense is clear and, and, you know, staying up there and they're giving themselves opportunities uh, Minnesota is um, 2-1-0 against Orlando. They've scored four goals, uh, four and two goals against. Um, but they are uh, 3-0-1 against Oscar Pereja. So Oscar Pereja has had Minnesota's number. Um, they've had Orlando's number, so it'll be a battle of, uh, you know, um, immovable object and what it's, whatever the opposite of a movable object is. So Irresistible force. Irresistible force. Um, yeah, anything else on, on, on how Minnesota United should, uh, should play them? I'm definitely expecting the complete opposite of last year's abject crap draw. Uh, yeah, these are these are two teams that are playing very very well in that their we style. We almost lost. We did. We were very lucky that it was a draw and not a crap the, loss. The ref called a, a, a penalty. What would have been a penalty kick, uh, an offside flag, on on bar review. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a question from Eric. Um, do you assign someone to shadow Nani all over the pitch, all the Dotson uh, on Nagby, or do you keep your normal zone or combo zone man? Um, I think we talked a little bit about that. I don't think we, I don't think you sort of man mark Nani all over the pitch. Um, you know, especially if you think Dotson can do a job like he did against Faco. Um, but you guys have any other thoughts? Yeah, just, because Orlando is going to want to make those fullback runs, I think pulling one player into man marking leaves the opportunity for too much space over on the flank that you can cross into either Mueller or Akindele. So, yeah, I, I think you trust your middle defenders to, if Nani does cut in, that they'll pick him up or, or Dotson to take him on the wing, but I would not shadow him. Yeah, you know, uh, the big thing is communication. You know, when you're handing off a player or whatever – you know, be aware of of if he's moving out of Dotson's zone into Aha's zone, Dotson needs to be aware who else Aha is covering. 
um, and what AHA's responsibilities are and what else is coming into his zone, like uh, the possibility of overlapping fullback. But yeah, uh, if they communicate, I, I say go with more of the zone route than man-marking Nani. All right, moment of truth, boys. Who wins the game? Who's going to the final? I'll start off. I have, I have Minnesota United. Um, I have this. Uh, I have them winning something similar uh, to last time. I think like a 3-1, 3 uh, victory. I'm not quite that optimistic. I think this goes to penalties, uh, but I would rather have Tyler Miller than Pedro Galese. So I think United does go to the final, but I think it's a, a draw for the scorebooks. And I'm going to split the difference. I'm going to say Minnesota wins 2-1. All right. We're all picking Minnesota, Adrian. So <laughs> Negative Tinkerbell. Yeah, neg- negative Tinkerbell. <clears throat> um, so put that on your bulletin board. All right. Uh, we have a few more questions. Uh, these are not specifically related to something we had talked about. So uh, we start to them in the, uh, the end of the podcast here. Uh, Chris Kremens on Twitter asks, why isn't Toy playing? Can I take this? Sure. Uh, we paid good money for uh, Luis Amaria, and although he might not be 100% healthy right now, uh, he still is a threat. Uh, he still moves well without the ball. He's not moving as well with the ball, or he's not having those soft touches to keep possession that we saw maybe in the first two games when he was 100% healthy. But if he thinks that he can start, he's going to start. And then from there on you have to understand that if we go ahead that someone like Schoenfeld is going to be way more the type of forward we want to have when we have a lead yes Schoenfeld missed two sitters that Toy probably would have scored to put us from three to one to five to one or something like that in the second half that is possible but when you have a three to one lead what you don't see is situations where Schoenfeld keeps possession, makes that extra pass to an Ethan Finley or to a Robin Lud um, or to a Ja'Cory Hayes. You see chances where he dribbles into space, takes up time, takes up clock that maybe Toy doesn't do. Maybe Toy would go for a shot that was kind of far-fetched. It goes over the crossbar and it's a goal kick. And now we have, are giving the other team more possession and more attack. So if we have the lead, Schoenfeld is going to be our better choice at center forward. Yeah, and I think my answer to this is Toy, for, for his incredible talent, um, and I'm actually with Chris. I'm bummed that we haven't seen more amazing Toy. Uh, he does have a tendency to drift out of games. And particularly with a game plan in the two knockout stage games, that was an 11 man plan. Everybody needed to be bought in. Everyone needed to know what their role was. And it's not that toy wouldn't have known what his role was, but just his tendency to be, if I'm not getting service, I'm going to be a little bit more passive, particularly in that Columbus game could have been just catastrophic. Um, You know, if NG wanted to give him minutes, I think he probably could have found 20 or 30 for him. Uh, But it's, a, it's hard to look a 4-1 win in, in the mouth too hard. So yeah. I, I don't think this is a reflection that Mason Toy is in the doghouse or that he hasn't been training hard or anything like that. I think he would have gotten more time in the knockout stages had he been fully healthy. 
uh, but he wasn't, unfortunately. And now, or sorry, in the group stage. And now that we're in the knockouts, it's so game plan specific. And MJ's point about Schoenfeld being an elite time killer, I think is very well taken because he's also phenomenal on defensive headers. And that's something that we haven't really seen from Toy. Um, Angelo Rodriguez was also very good at this, interestingly enough. So, yeah, I just, you know, we won't get into the will we ever play games after Orlando thing. But assuming that does happen, I think we will see more of Toy. I think this is a tournament decision. Yep. Uh, all right. Adu asks, if Minnesota United would try to implement a fan stadium attendance plan such as the one being implemented by the St. Paul Saints, do you think that the demand for those tickets would surpass the limited amount of tickets or the opposite? Uh, he says, say the limit is set at 4,000 attendance. If you're not familiar, um, St. Paul Saints are, are starting games tomorrow, I believe, with fans in the stadium. Um, they have designated entrances. They have designated basically zones where they're capping the attendance you know, for a certain section of the stadium at 250. Um, you have a certain entrance gate you need to go through. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, seen the, I've seen the map for what they are planning on doing. I, you, I could very much see, and I very much expect that um, Minnesota United, if we have uh, a, you know, regular season after this tournament um, and have games here that they are going to try to have fans in the stadium. I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's a terrible fucking idea, but I fully expect Minnesota United to do this. And, um, <clears throat> you know, based on what, the saints are doing they're they're limiting it the capacity to 1500 people you know into these 250 person zones um their capacity is the chs field is like a little over 7000 so extrapolating it out to all i mean alliance is is almost is like a little over 19000 um so that 4000 is actually a pretty good extrapolation what do you guys think will would the demand surpass the amount of tickets um are people just not going to want to go? Um, I tend to believe that it will probably that you know that there will be four thousand people in that stadium. Um, but again, I've also seen some of the USL teams that have been playing and seeing the crowds there and, and not being like being surprised at, at the sort of lack of people at, at games. But again, it's also USL versus Major League Soccer. So, what are your thoughts? I think if they had done this plan from the beginning and they were trying to stage these games in March and April, I think there were enough people who just didn't take the virus seriously, didn't think crowds were going to be a problem. I think they would have had no trouble selling this out. I think what we have seen over the last four to six weeks nationwide has really soured a lot of people on these type of reopening things. Um, uh, shout out to the Saints. Like, I, I also agree. I don't think they should be doing this. I don't think they should have fans. I understand the economics of it. If you are going to, to have fans, this is about as good a system as you can possibly have. Um, it limits the ability of outbreaks to spread beyond the 250. And they're doing a lot of things right. I, just on a personal level, I, it's still not enough to get me excited about going to the park. But 4,000 people is not that much. Uh, not when you consider that Allianz fills out every game and there's a waiting list for season tickets and this, that, and yada, 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 yada. Uh, they would also be almost the only game in town. So I think to, to Adrian's specific question, yeah, I think demand would be there. Uh, we saw when United staged the, the viewing of their first Orlando game, those thousand tickets sell out in under an hour, just over an hour. I mean, it wasn't, it was long. It, it was quick enough that I hesitated because I was like, Oh, I really want to go to this. But I don't think it was like 250. 
250 tickets. Yeah, yeah that was it. Cause that's like the max that they could do at the time. Yeah. It wasn't oh, a, it I was thought a, it was a... only seating on the North end of the stadium. Um, so yeah, it was, cause you could all, basically they showed the game on the big screen and they, they didn't even get all those people to show up. Actually. It was, it was way, I think it was, they, it was way under what they predicted it would be. So, um, but yeah, they only had 250 tickets. Okay. But even so, I mean, it sold out uh, in minutes or short hours. So I yeah. think, I think the demand would be there. And I think once people paid for tickets, they would show up. Um, but whether they should, that's another question. Yeah. MJ, do you have anything you want to add? I think there are enough, uh, whether they're diehard soccer fans or I don't want to say, uh, not COVID deniers, but more of the sense of the, whether you want to say overconfident or just we can do this the right way. We can mitigate the risk, wear masks, socially distance, stay within our group of people that I immediately know um, and do this the right way where I think it would sell out. I think they wouldn't have a problem um, and again, whether whether the people actually show up or not, that that sort of last minute, oh, um, I thought I could get my friends to go. They're not ready for this. I was really pumped for this. You know, those sort of last minute drops do happen. So, sure. Um, Bill McGuire, McGuire, McGeary, McGuire, McGeary. He asks, "When are you going to start paying me so I will a stay in town?" B, not have mental health breakdowns. C, not destroy my body with clumsy falls. Answer, I will work for grade A Sativa Indica. Um, that's a good question, Bill. Um, this podcast will work for grade A Sativa Indica. If you want to get on that Patreon, um, you could uh, we'll just make that a, a direct connection. You don't have to go through the Patreon system. I'll, I'll, we'll hook you up with your, you can hook us up with grade A Sativa Indica. So, uh, Rodrigo asks, rate my MLS Twitter show appearance with a game of two truths and a lie. Uh, I'm going to let MJ take this one, but I, if you, I don't know if you, guys, if you guys did the second screen thing with uh, the MLS Twitter show that was happening during the match, Rodrigo was on um, representing Minnesota United. He gave a Dave's I Know a shout-out, um, which was awesome and super cool. So thank you, Rodrigo. And MJ, uh, you want to do two truths and a lie for Rodrigo here? Yeah, this has nothing to do with your, your Twitter show appearance, but I, I do love playing two truths and a lie. And so – um, I will t- give uh, three phrases here about Rodrigo. Solid tactical analysis on 55.1 podcast. Two, 31 questions pod moderator is your best gig. And three, Rodrigo loves everything to do with Chile, including Charles Arangis, who got Peruvian Zambrano sent off with a red card for a slide tackle. And, of course, the Chilean Eduardo Vargas, who scored two times for Chile to win the 2015 Copa America semifinal versus Peru. Oh, clearly number one's a lie. <laughs> exactly. Um, Rodrigo will probably be pissed that we did not talk about uh, uh, Galassi, because um, he's Peruvian, a Peruvian goalkeeper. So. Yeah, you may- I mentioned him. I just said he wasn't as good as Tyler Miller in a penalty yeah, shoot. No, exactly. Dan <laughs> didn't mention him. All right. And finally, from our friend Andy uh, at LaCribs on Twitter, 
Uh, how will you celebrate when the looms win the tournament? And then he has, he has guesses for us here. He says, he says Dan, he's going to smoke, grill one of them horse-looking things from Avatar. Uh, I'm going to run out of the Blackheart uh, sans pants and a Heath Forever t-shirt, screaming random German in a cloud of Alaskan thunderfuck, um, which is a, uh, yeah, a really great strategy. You know what that means. Yeah. Um, Bill, uh, his life now complete with a kind of MLS-ish cup. He'll scour the intermess looking for a job as a roadie for Eagles tribute band, never to watch soccer again. <laughs> And then MJ without broom ball and just time on his hands. He's going to start remodeling his murder den to make it less murdery. So Andy, I think that's pretty much spot on. Dan's going to yeah. smoke a horse from Avatar. I'm going to be high as fuck. Bill will become a roadie and MJ's going to, I mean, I, the, the last one, MJ making his murder den less murdery is probably the least. Uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know anything how I procrastinate uh, things. Yeah. Uh, the, the, this, this murder den is long away from getting anything. <laughs> also, I am playing Broomball Pickup now twice a week. So, ah, all right. so you're, you're wrong on both accounts. But, but I do appreciate that he knows two things about me. That's true. All right. Well, guys, that was, uh, that was good. Thank you so much. Um, remember, rate and review our podcast. And on Spotify. We're on Spotify now. So just follow us on Spotify. You don't actually even have to download. Just follow us. We have some followers or whatever. Uh, heathout.com davesiknow.com um, at TDIK on Twitter I'm at Texas Eller, Dan's at D-Wade uh, MJ is MJ, at MJ Matsui and uh, Bill is at Bill underscore McGuire thanks for listening we have another day to know this to try and work it out cause we both know we can't do nothing at all Long as you do yours, land here become fecund. Yeah, uh, we, we do yeah. our thing, son. Through the act, we attract two, hope to reach one. Uh, we, yeah. we, we do our thing, do it. We do our thing, son. Some will paint a piece, some will spray with a machine gun. It's mad work to be done. We, we, we do our thing, son. Y'all know we can't do nothing at all. Y'all know we can't do nothing at all. Nah, y'all know we can't do nothing at all. Check it out, guys. GT. He don't do nothing.